The gospel, according to Matthew, on the resurrection of our Lord Sunday, is the basis of our sermon today. So listen along. You can read along on the screen as well. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and, going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were as white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples. He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly, Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him clasped his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. This is the gospel of our Lord. Seven words. Seven words changed his life forever. His name He was Private Michael Delaney. And you can't blame a young man, especially at that time, during the American Civil War, for doing what he did. You see, he had made an oath to his commanding officers, to his army. But then he had second thoughts. And if you consider all of the carnage, all of the bloodshed, and all the the, the killing that was going on, the thousands and tens of thousands of lives that were being taken, families, states split and ruined. You can't blame him for doing what he did. He begged his commanding officer to get out of fighting. He begged him because he had a young wife at home, a new family, and he wanted to take care of them. But the commanding officer could do nothing about it. You have to fight. And so, on a march down from Colorado to New Mexico, he did this. He snuck away from the ranks, and he defected. He deserted. It didn't take long for him to be found, and when he was found, the trial by his peers was quick. He wasn't a good soldier anyhow. He was drunk all the time on duty, and his commanding officer had nothing really good to say about him. He wasn't impressive at all. He was actually kind of scum of the earth. The trial of his peers had seven words that changed his life forever. The courts find Private Michael Delaney guilty, desertion. And he was to be executed by a firing squad. On July 18, 1863, Michael Delaney woke up in his jail cell in the dark full of regret. Now think about this. It had been five months and they still hadn't come up with the date that he would be executed, but he knew every day that he woke up that he would be executed for what he had done, 
for his crimes of the past. He was holding that guilt in, and you can imagine feeling that guilt that was brought down on him for what he had done. He woke up that morning feeling shame and sorrow. Kind of reminds me of some other people that were holding shame and sorrow and guilt in their souls. It was Jesus' followers, particularly the men you see, these disciples of Jesus, they were with Jesus throughout this whole week, and uh, Thursday night, they, they enlisted for him. Jesus promised his own body, his own blood, his own presence with them. He says, I'm going to be with you through this battle. I'm going to be there for you. And that same night, they said, yeah, I'll go with you. I'll go with you to die. But then what happened? The soldiers came, and they defected, all of them except for John and the women, I always knew women were tough. They followed Jesus, John, and those women to the cross. And they heard those words of Jesus on the cross. What did he say? He says, it is finished. And they went back to those disciples at the house. And they told them all about everything that had happened. And Jesus' words, it is finished. And there were the disciples all weekend, waking up with guilt, waking up with the shame of an almost unforgivable sin desertion of a best friend. Your past has a way of catching up to you, doesn't it? Those women would go to the tomb early in the morning. They brought spices and herbs because the smell of a tomb, I don't know if you've smelt any kind of dead thing after a couple of days would smell terrible and they wanted to anoint this body and they wanted to make an offering to their Lord and their Savior and their Master They wanted to make death smell good, and so they got up early in the morning, and they wondered who would roll away that big stone. And as they came closer to the tomb, they discovered, well, they discovered something that they weren't expecting. The men, they weren't up early that morning. They weren't able or willing to help roll away the stone, but maybe that means that they were holding on to some guilt that they couldn't confront. They stayed at home. How about you? Have you had guilt from the past? We all do. Is it guilt about betraying a friend? Is it guilt about making a promise and then dropping it? Is it guilt about making a strain in a relationship that can't be mended and you know that you're part of the problem? Is it the guilt that God has said, be do this and don't do that, and you haven't done this and you haven't done that, and you haven't been the person that he's called you to be? Your past has a way of catching up to you, doesn't it? And we all have a way of dealing with it. How are you dealing with it? We all have a medicine cabinet. And in this medicine cabinet, there's a whole bunch of different ways that we try to deal with guilt. And and, and we reach into that medicine cabinet and sometimes we we, we reach for bargains. I'm not talking about bargains at Walmart. I'm talking about bargains with God. We try to bargain with him kind of like, I remember being in high school and my friends and I were in a place that we shouldn't have been, okay? Pastors aren't perfect. And we were in that place, and we heard noise of, of somebody that was coming around that was about to bust us. And what was I praying in my heart? <laughs> oh, boy, did I get to know God right then in that moment really fast. I was praying this. I said, God, if you just let me get out of this without my parents finding out, I promise I'll never what? Do it again. We make bargains with God. We reach into that medicine cabinet to deal with our guilt, don't we? 
and, and, and we reach for different things that try to make us feel better. We, we try to mask it over. And maybe you've done this in the past too. You've moved on from a relationship to relationship to relationship because you stink at relationships and you want to cover over your fault that you haven't worked on yourself. Or maybe we mask over our, our, our failures by pouring ourselves into work so that we're so entrenched in the day-to-day work that we do that we don't have to think about our past, that we don't have to think about our failings. Or maybe, or maybe, we're medicating on the bottle of a bottle to try to drown it all away. My friends, all of that, and all of that stuff in that medicine cabinet, they're all (laughs) band-aids. They're all band-aids that are covering over a gaping wound A gaping wound that can't be healed by you or by your friend or by your spouse or by a change of job or by any of that. As the women approached, they wondered more. As they approached, they saw the stone was rolled away. They saw the soldiers on the ground and they approached and there's an angel. There's this heavenly being there that said something that I would need to hear too if I saw a heavenly being and it was five or six in the morning before the sun came up. Do not be afraid for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen just as he said. Did you hear those seven words? He is not here. He has risen. Come and see the place where he lay. The women enter the tomb, and this tomb where there's usually bodies of deceased loved ones or family members, a a tomb that would stink with death. This tomb was different. It was a new tomb of Joseph of Arimathea that was given for the burial of Jesus, a tomb that would have stunk with his corpse. They walk in with their spices and their herbs, and guess what? There isn't even a stench of death in this rock. They walk into this tomb and they see something amazing. They see this, the, the burial clothes are there, but the body has come out from them and they see a folded linen. The sign of a man, no, a God who is in complete control. The news is almost too good to be true. They turn like the angels tell them and they head back to tell the other disciples On July 18, 1863, Michael Delaney received seven words that ushered in a new era of his life because it was on that day that he woke up. And they weren't the words, the courts find Private Michael Delaney guilty. The words were written by hand by guess who? Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln, who had looked at his case and had no reason to pardon this betrayer, this deserter, had no reason to take this drunk that was in the army, this, this, this loser, but leave it up to President Lincoln to show mercy, love, and pardon and humor because he says these seven words, let him fight instead of being shot. Delaney's past, freed from it all. Delaney's guilt, freed from it all, pardoned. And here's the thing. In our life, when we reach for the medicine cabinet and we can't fix it and we're using Band-Aids to to, to tape over a gaping wound, that's not going to work, but this is going to work. 
Our sin, our condition needs pardon. It doesn't need band-aids. It needs a commander-in-chief who comes in and says, forgiven. It it takes a doctor who says that you have a spot on that spiritual liver and a doctor who's going to deal with it. A doctor who's going to heal it. It's going to take an Abraham Lincoln coming into your jail cell where you have no hope and you're holding on to guilt and to say, pardoned. That's the only way out. And this is why Easter, the resurrection of our Lord, is so important for you and for me. It's so important for us because this is the moment when, well, there's actually, there's so much in it, but this is the moment when God says that you're pardoned. This is the moment that God says that you're free. This is the moment that God says everything that I've said about my forgiveness is true because my son is alive. He is risen. Just as he said. That means that when Jesus put his hands out on the cross and he says that it is finished, that's as true as the resurrection, just as he says that your sins are forgiven. The resurrection enters us into a new era and really the whole world into a new era because, my friends, this, this resurrection, the Savior that has come, has been not, never taught in any other philosophy or religion. This is something that has come into our world and introduced to us a solution that nothing else can do, that no medicine cabinet, no philosophy could ever heal. And this is why the resurrection of our Lord is important in your life. Um, the women return and they run to Jesus. They touch him. They listen uh, they, and, and they cling to him in worship, it says. This is the new era that's entered into our life. Number one, we have certainty about God's word. The angel says, Jesus is risen. How? Just as he said that he would. Every promise in scripture is true. And if Jesus hadn't rose from the dead, he would have been like this madman that went around claiming all these great things. Like, I'm going to enter in the, the, the kingdom of God into this world. I, and he was a, maybe just a madman that did really good magic tricks. But when you see the resurrection and you see that over 500 people saw him after he was raised from the dead, 1 Corinthians 15, and you see that people even were so convinced that he rose from the dead that they themselves were martyred. They were killed because of what they believe. You have to believe that this is God. And you have to believe that when he says anything in Scripture, it's true because he's not a madman. He is God and all of his promises come true. Even the promise when he says that he would be raised from the dead. And so you can trust this book called the Bible because he's the author of it. You can trust everything that he says about our condition and our sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's what God says, but are justified freely, that are pardoned freely by grace. That's true because of the resurrection. It's proof, just as Jesus says. And when you worry about the future, it says here that God looks over even a sparrow. And if God can look over a sparrow and take care of a bird, how much more is he going to take care of us? You can trust every word. Number two, the resurrection enters in a new era because of this. We are free to worship God. You saw the women. What did they do when they saw Jesus and Jesus greeted them? They clung to his feet. And it says in the Greek that they worshipped him. Now, worship has a bad connotation a lot of times, especially in a town like Austin, where people think that, that God or gods are this vindictive, superstitious idea. What kind of a God demands that we bow down and worship to him? I mean, are you, all you Christians brainwashed? 
Uh, is God like this narcissist that says, I need to be worshipped, I need to be bowed down to, I need your love, I need your affection? That's a pretty, pretty pathetic God. But a lot of people think that about worship. But here's the deal about your God in the Bible. Your God in the Bible isn't the narcissist. Your God in the Bible isn't the withholding God. Your God in the Bible isn't the God who's waiting for you to make him happy. Here's a couple passages about your God in the Bible. Your God is not withholding but giving. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Your God's not the jealous God, but he's the forgiving God. Jeremiah 31:34 says, I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sin no more. He's not your narcissistic God. He's a God who's a servant of all. He washes his disciples' feet, and he says on the cross, Father, forgive them. And by the way, your God, look at this in verse 10. In verse 10 it says this, Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my, what does he say? Deserters? Go and tell my betrayers? Go and tell my brothers. Your God has a name for you. And by his blood on the cross, he calls you brother and sister. Now, my friends, what kind of God is that? Not a God who's withholding and narcissistic, but a God is what? That's loving you first. And what's our response? Our response to a God who loved us first is what? If you, if you think that God is demanding worship out of you, then you are not talking about the same God that I'm seeing right here in the Bible. But if you know that your God is a God who loves you and cares for you, you can't help but run to his feet on Easter and throw your arms around him because he's the one that wrote the note. He's the one that's pardoned you. He doesn't demand worship. If you know him for who he is, you will worship him. And my friends, this is how we worship God, and we do it together here at Holy Word. We will preach from this pulpit the message that you're hearing this morning. We will confront sin, both personal sin and the sin of this world and the brokenness of this world, and we won't shy away from it because Jesus didn't, but we will believe and push every person in faith and patience to believe in a God that forgives, who says it is finished, do not fear. We believe. And we'll do that together. We'll do that together in public worship and we'll do it together in our homes. That's why we in our community encourage small group Bible study called Connect Groups here at Holy Word that meet in homes across the Austin area so that you can sit down with like-minded people and discuss this great Word of God that we have. We'll do it and we'll encourage you to worship, I mean truly worship with your whole body by using your talents and your times today, the day of Easter. I know it's a big day in the church and we had over 90 volunteers who put together a day to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And every volunteer had a job and every volunteer did it. And probably they were motivated a little bit by me nudging them on, but you know why they're motivated? Because they were at their feet, at the feet of Jesus, worshiping this great guy that has done good things for them. And we will take that message out into this world. We'll take that message out into this world as a, as a congregation. We'll take this message out of this world individually to share that message with other people. That's what we're all about. 
Finally, you have a Savior who has what? Who has pardoned you. But not just a Savior who's pardoned you. He's a Savior that gives you permission to worship. And he gives you permission to worship him with all of your time and your talents, with all of your gifts, to turn away from the medicine cabinet and to see that you have a purpose. You have a Savior that has given you certainty. You have a Savior that sets you free to worship. He's given you purpose in your life. And finally this, we, because of Jesus' resurrection, can have certainty about the future. When Jesus rises from the dead, it says in the Bible, he is like the first fruits among all creation. Imagine um, maybe last fall that you planted a, uh, just a bag full of, of Texas wildflowers in your garden in the backyard. And you know that it was going to sit dormant all winter and the rain was going to come and water it so that by springtime, that garden would be full of flowers. Now you're, it's springtime and you're expecting it to happen. And all of a sudden you see one little sprout a Texas wildflower, wildflower sprout up, under, up from the ground. What does that tell you about the rest of that garden? In a couple of weeks, that whole garden is going to be full of color. That whole garden is going to be full of life. When it says that Jesus is the first fruits from among all creation, that he came out of that tomb, it means this, that because he rose, that we too will rise. In fact, Jesus himself says it in John chapter eleven twenty five. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will live even though he dies. And so here's the great thing about the resurrection. You have certainty in God's word. You have a purpose for your life, but not just purpose for your life. You have been prepared by him for the future. Nothing can take your life away from him because he rose from the dead. When we die, we will enter into heaven. When, we, when Jesus comes back, our bodies will be raised, just like the Bible says. And that message is for you, for me, and for the whole world, for all who put their faith in Jesus. Michael Delaney, when he received that pardon, he probably never looked at his life the same, did he? The story is, is that he actually went back in, into the army. He, he was given a new life, but this time he was serving But he wasn't serving out of fear. What was he serving out of? He served the rest of the war out of gratitude to that commander-in-chief, that freedom. You've been forgiven. You've been pardoned. You've been set free. Now worship him. Not out of obligation that you have to get right with him, but that he is the one who's pardoned you forever. You have certainty in his word. You have a purpose in your life, and you have a plan for the future. He is risen. Amen.